You may have a seat. Give your Bibles. Give your Bibles. Would you uh, open them up? And would you turn to Isaiah chapter 63? We'll be reading from Isaiah 63, verse 15, actually to the end of chapter 64. So we'll begin with Isaiah 63, verse 15. Isaiah 63, verse 15. Look down from heaven and see, from your holy and beautiful habitation. Where are your zeal and your might? The stirring of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from me. For you are our father, though Abraham does not recognize us and Israel doesn't acknowledge us. You, O Lord, are our father, our redeemer from of old is your name. O Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our heart so that we fear you not? Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your heritage. Your holy people held possession for a little while. Our adversaries have trampled down your sanctuary. We have become like those over whom you have never ruled, like those who are not called by your name. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down that the mountains might quake at your presence as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil to make your name known to your adversaries that the, the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did things that we didn't look for, you came down and the mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No, I has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness. Those who remember you in your ways, behold, you were angry, and we sinned. In, your, in our sins we have been a long time, and shall we be saved? We've all become like one who is unclean, and, our, and all our righteous deeds are like polluted, a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, takes us away. There is no one who calls on your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hands of our iniquity. But now, O oh Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay. You are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O oh Lord, and remember not our iniquity forever. Behold, please look. We're all your people. Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house where our fathers praised you has been burned by fire. And all our pleasant places have become ruins. Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? That's far God's word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you would help us right now. Would you hear our prayers? And would you, by your word and your spirit, refresh, restore your people? Lord, would you teach us to pray prayers of repentance, prayers for forgiveness? Lord, would you instruct us that we might, not, we might know what to do in our sin? We pray these things in Jesus' name, who makes you, our Father, in his name, amen. 
I wonder if you can relate with the cries of Isaiah on behalf of his people here. In fact, they resonate with the words that we just sang, gracious savior of, our, of my ruined life. This is a prayer that is greatly about sin, isn't it? It was prayed first by Isaiah, and it was meant as a prayer for the people who would be taken into exile, given many years ahead of time so that they would know how to pray when they are in exile. And it is people who are literally in a ruined life. These are people who would have been called by God's name. They would have called God their Lord and their God. He their God, they his people. Everybody around them knew that they were the people of this God. And now, many years later, they find themselves sitting in Babylon, in chains, being mocked. And they look back to Jerusalem, and that beautiful temple they used to worship in was utterly destroyed. Not only that, they were living in great sin and apostasy. They were rejecting God in all his ways. They were lost in their sin. They were taken captive by sin. You could say that they had a ruined life, a ruined faith. They were ruined by their sin. I wonder if you noticed, we can sort of break this down, not into verses because there's lots of verses, but into sections. In the first section and the last section, they have something in common. I'll point this out to you. But they both, the, 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 the song, if you have this all as one song, it begins by looking at God's house. Did you see that? Verse 15 of 63, look down from heaven and see from your holy and beautiful habitation. Your holy and beautiful habitation. And then it ends, in the last section, it's, we, we are looking at that same phrase, verse 11 of chapter 64, our holy and beautiful house or habitation. And you see that there is a dramatic difference between God's house in heaven and God's house on earth. The glorious and beautiful household in heaven and the utterly destroyed and demolished and ruined house on earth. Dear, dear church, this is a song that will help us when we find ourselves to be in sin. What happens when you realize your sin? Can you still pray? What happens when you realize that you've sinned against God, that you have been ignoring him, that you have disobeyed him? What happens? Can you still pray? Do you realize your sin and maybe make peace with it? Well, that's fine. God is just going to have to deal with my sin. You know, nobody's perfect. Or maybe you realize your sin and you feel hopeless. I can't, I can't even pray. No, God wouldn't. No, God would not be merciful to me and I should not. I cannot come to God until I've cleaned myself up. And dear friends, this, dear church, this, this song is given to us that we might know how to pray. We might understand why it is that even in our sin, we ought to turn and run to God as our Father. A first point that we see in this, the first section, is this, confess that the father of the glorious house has children who look fatherless. Confess that the father of the glorious house has children who look fatherless. Let's read this. We'll see this in verses 15 to 19. Read this with me. Look down from heaven and see from your holy and beautiful habitation. Where are your zeal and your might? 
The stirring of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from me, for you are our Father. Though Abraham doesn't know us and Israel doesn't acknowledge us, you, O Lord, are our Father, our Redeemer from old is your name. O Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our hearts so that we fear you not? Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your heritage. Your holy people held possession for a little while. Our adversaries have trampled down your sanctuary. We have become like those over whom you have never ruled, like those who are not called by your name. Did you notice the glory of God's heavenly house there? You see that? Look down from heaven and see from your holy and beautiful habitation. Notice the glory of God's heavenly house. He starts with an an acknowledgement of how glorious heaven is, how glorious and wonderful and beautiful it is. This really, heaven is really a place where you get to see how glorious God is. Just being there, you get a sense of how glorious the owner of that house is. You get to see how wonderful he is. Heaven is just a reflection of how glorious and beautiful God is. The place really does reflect God's character. You get to know a lot about God based on what heaven is like. Isaiah had a a bit of a vision of that in the temple, didn't he, when he was first called in Isaiah 6. He didn't have a vision of going up to heaven, but essentially God had brought a vision down. And what did Isaiah say when he saw the glory of God? What did he say? Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I, am, have a, I dwell among a people of unclean lips. What did Isaiah see? He, he saw angels, right, calling back and forth, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. We get a sense of how wonderful, how glorious, and how beautiful God is by looking at his house, his habitation, his heavenly temple, the place where he resides. Yet we see here that what is on earth is not as it is in heaven. We can see that, right? It starts with how wonderful and glorious and beautiful you are. And we look here on your house on earth and it looks nothing, looks nothing like you. It's not glorious, it's not holy, it's not beautiful. God's heart is not displayed in his people. It's held back. You see this, we're your inner parts. This is talking about God's compassion, his, his commitment to his people. You know when you feel you have a gut feeling and you just, you gotta do that? This is what it's talking about. When the Bible talks, when, in, in the languages of the Bible, when it talks about God's compassion, it actually talks about like his intestines and spleen. Well, he doesn't have that, but that's, it's getting at you. You know, in your gut, you just feel this love and compassion. He's saying, where, where is this? Why aren't you acting? We're running astray like, we're wandering around like people who don't know you and who have never known for you. And yet, did you notice that they still, he still calls God their father? Even though they're not acting like God is their father, and Isaiah is ready to say, look, we are all sinned, me included, and we have acted as if you're not our father. He recognizes his sin. And he doesn't just continue on in his ways, saying, well, I guess I'm just not one of your children. No, he remembers the promises that God has made. And he says, you are our father. Would you please treat us as your children? And treating us as your children, it is this zeal for their holiness, this commitment to them following God. He says that the father, the fatherhood of God is their only plea. Abraham and Israel are of no help. Did you notice that? 
Verse, verse 16, for you are our father, though Abraham does not know us and Israel doesn't acknowledge us. The point here is that it doesn't matter who our great-grandparents were. That's not going to help us here. Having this ancestry that you have a, a Christian lineage or you have, in this case, it would have been a Jewish lineage, it doesn't help them at all. Because we have the realities, I'm not walking like one of God's children. I'm acting like I'm an enemy of his, and now what am I going to do? My hope is not that Abraham is my ancestor. My only hope is that God, God is my father. The only hope is to trust God's gospel promises. When he tells his people, when you sin, return to me and call me father. Remember that I am your we see here that God is sovereign even over his people's sin. Did you notice this? In verse 17, O Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our heart so that we fear you not? This doesn't mean that God is the one who's causing Israel's sin. He's not the one who causes his children's sin. But the Bible talks about God's sovereignty in, in relation to people's sin and even hardening their hearts. It starts with this idea that every single human heart would become desperately hard. That is the status quo. Your heart is hard against God. You hate God, you hear his commands, and they bounce off of you. It's like water off a duck's back. You cannot be turned. You will not heed any of God's warnings. Nothing will change you. You are hard, except God, he actively softens people's hearts. That's the only thing that's keeping people's hearts from being incredibly hard. He directs his people. He directs he directs his children, he directs them away from sin. Sin that they would naturally go to. And so what he's saying here is, is that God has sort of taken back some of that restraint. He's sort of let them wander into that sin. He didn't make them, but it was by his decision that they would do that. Because he didn't actively restrain them. Because they were loving disobedience so much and wanting it so much, he kind of stepped back and said, I'll let you wander into that sin. I'm not going to restrain you. I want you to see how wicked sin is. You've got this idea that being a fatherless child would be so much better. If only I didn't have a dad telling me what to do all the time. If only I didn't have a dad who'd make me do what he thinks is right and care about my holiness and care about my heart. Wouldn't it be so much better if he just let me do whatever he wanted? We see this as foolish, right? When we see the toddler being so angry, the toddler being so angry, you're not letting me run into the street. But it's just as foolish when we do it, isn't it? when we would prefer that God not restrain us or tell us not to do things, but we would maybe prefer, that, prefer God not acting like our Father. And so God sometimes hands people over to their sin. So they would get a taste of fatherlessness, not so that they would ultimately stay there, they would see how much sweeter it is to have a father, to have God as their father, who has a zeal, a desire, a commitment to their holiness, and that they would live lives that are like their heavenly father, that they would be holy because their, holy, their father who is in heaven is holy. And we already see here that this prayer is evidence that it's not a, a permanent hardening. Did you notice that? If it was a permanent hardening, why are they praying? Why is it that they're calling out to God as Father? The medicine has worked. 
and they realize, oh, it is so much better for you to be our father. He says, return uh, for the sake of your servants. Return for the sake of your servants. Why would he, why would he say that? Why would he say that? Return, verse 17, return for the sake of your servants. And this is, he's referring back to the patriarchs, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You might even see David. And it's not saying because these guys were such great guys. Look, we're their kids. He already said that that's not going to count for anything. He's not saying these guys are such great guys. You guys are terrible, but your ancestor was fantastic. So because he was really great, would you please have mercy on us and, 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 and take us back and start treating us like your children again? That's not what this means. Whenever the Bible says, for the sake of your servants or sake of the, of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and David, what's going on here is that he's saying, for the sake of the promises that you swore to them, for the sake of the covenant that you made to them, in other words, for the sake of the gospel that you swore. And dear friends, this is your plea. When you are in sin, when you realize your sin, when you realize that your behavior, if you're part of the household of God, looks nothing like your father. That looks nothing like the household of God, the, the, the God's holy habitation. It looks nothing like heaven. This is your plea. That you can call God your father. But not because he naturally is that, but because he once swore a covenant he has made the gospel. He's made promises. He's made promises that he would save undeserving people and he would make them his children and they could act, he would treat them as his children. So when you find yourself in sin, you call on the covenant promises of God. The gospel is your only plea. Do not dare turn to God as your father after you've sinned and be like, Please, please restore me. Because really, this is a break from my natural character. It's not really like me. I was really good, but for a period of time, I was really bad. So for that reason, please accept me. Friends, never do that. Don't, always, don't also do it like, I will do better next time. Take me back. Here's my argument. Because I'll be really good in the future. No. Your only plea is that God has sworn the gospel. He has sworn that he would bring a redeemer who would die for your sins and rise from the dead and he would make you God's children. And you confess that the father has a glory, of, a, of the glorious house has children who look fatherless. The gospel gives God as our father. This is something that is repeated over and 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 over again in this church and in scripture. The gift of the gospel is that enemies of God, wicked people, sinful people, can have God as their father because Christ, the son of God, was punished instead of them. That's the covenant. That's the gospel. And that is your only plea. For the sake of what God swore many years to do, that is your plea. So friends, do not settle with your sin. 
Do you not see what you're doing, the sins that you're doing, and, and you compare that to God's heavenly throne? Like, well, that's about right. And do not let that keep you from God. Remember that he is the father of a glorious house, and your sin is not fitting based on who he is. And turn to him, not based on what you have done or can do, but on what he has sworn to do in the gospel Our next point is this, and we'll see this in the first five verses of 64. Confess that sin is unthinkable considering how God deals with people. Confess that sin is unthinkable considering how God deals with people. Let's read 1 to 5 of chapter 64. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we didn't look for, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God beside you who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember you in your ways. Behold, you were angry and we sinned. In our sins we have been a long time and shall we be saved? First, we have to remember how God deals with people. We see first how God deals with his adversaries. Did you notice that in this first part? It's this idea of Israel's thinking, how could we have done this We know how you deal with your adversaries. We know what you can do with people who are your enemies. We've seen this. And so they would be referring to the times when in their history, God miraculously came down, he showed up, and he destroyed their enemies. Remember how God destroyed Egypt when Egypt was showing itself to be an enemy of God and of his people. What did he do to Pharaoh? What did he do to Sodom and Gomorrah? What did he do to the people who attacked them in the wilderness? What did he do to the people of of Canaan, the ones who did not recognize the Lord as God? They saw what God did to people who were his enemies. They were the beneficiary of that. That saved them so many times. They of all people knew how God deals with his enemies enemies, when fire kindles brushwood and fire causes water to boil, we know how you act toward enemies. How foolish it is for us to act like this. But not only that, they're to remember, we're to remember that sin is unthinkable considering how God deals with his people as well. We see this in that, in this, this chapter, this chapter, this section as well. There is no other God who acts for those who wait for him. There's nowhere else to go. There is no other God who is as great to his people as you are. This is what he says here, right? From of old, verse four, from of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God beside you who acts for those who wait for him. There is no other God. Even the imaginary gods aren't as good as you. Pick a religion. Pick one religion. One popular religion, pick one. One religion that is as good as God, the real God, actually is to his people. It's not simply that God is the best God to his people that exists, that's true. He's also the best one that could have ever been imagined. 
God is so good to his people. We see that he takes initiative. Did you see that? He's the one who takes initiative. Verse three, when you did awesome things we did not look for. God is the one who goes and grabs people. He saves them. They don't take the initiative. He's the one who takes the initiative. He is the one who takes initiative for his people. He starts that relationship. He goes and finds enemies who weren't seeking him. And he gets them. He is good for his people. He meets people who work righteousness joyfully. Did you see that in verse 5? Who, you meet him who joyfully works righteousness. Here we see that, it, that holiness and righteousness, it's not a choice. God is not giving you a choice between joy and holiness. It's not a choice between happiness and gladness and goodness. He's saying here that God is the God of people whose commands give them joy. He's not a God who gives bad commands. He's not a, a God who gives commands that are against joy and against goodness. Look at the Ten Commandments. Which of those is against joy? Which of those says no joy? Which of those is against the goodness and flourishing of people? None of them. God meets people who joyfully work righteousness. This is a reminder that to belong to God, it's not simply that oh, I'm going to do things even though I don't enjoy it. No, it is this idea that we enjoy what God enjoys. We enjoy walking as our Father. Not simply because it's the right thing to do, it is. But it's also the good thing to do. He is a good Father who makes good commands. He doesn't make life terribly hard for his people for no reason. In the book of Ephesians, there is commands. You find a bunch of commands for how, how do we walk now as, chil as children of God? How do we walk as people who are saved? So there's commands for husbands and commands for wives. There's commands for people who are in authority. There's, people, there's commands for people who are under authority, right? There's commands for children. There's commands for parents. What is the command that God gives to fathers in Ephesians, to fathers and mothers? What is the command? That we bring up our children in the fear and discipline of the, of the Lord. And what else? And that we do not provoke our children to anger. What does that mean? It means we act like God in the commands we give to our kids. We do not give commands to them arbitrarily or to frustrate them or to make, them, make life difficult. That we instruct and discipline and shape our kids and we make rules and we make family rules for their benefit, for God's glory, yes, and for their benefit. Dear friends, we have to remember this when we sin against God. When we realize that what we're doing and what God has commanded is so different, we need to realize, yes, how, how he deals with his enemies and how foolish it would be to act like his enemy, but we also see how good he is to his children. He takes the initiative. He takes responsibility for their salvation. We don't love him first. He loves us first. We love him because he first loved us. He also describes this as those who wait for him. Did you notice that? No eye has seen a God beside you who acts for those who wait for him. What does it mean to be a person who waits for God? Well, we can see a bit of the inverse. Sin is refusing to wait. 
Sin is refusing to wait for God. Sin says, I want everything right now, and I will not wait for God to give it to me. So if I want more money, I'm not, if I want God to provide more for me, I'm not willing to pray to God and ask him to help me and to give it to me in a way that pleases him, in a way that fits with his law. I'm going to get it. I want it so bad. I'm going to get it now no matter what. And I will sin in order to do that. I'm not going to wait. We also reminded last week that this period of time for God's people is kind of like we're in the wilderness. We serve the Lord. We know him. We have joy in doing that. But we do so in a land that's not our own. We're aliens. We're strangers. There's hardships. There's tribulation. And refusing to wait is to say, no, I will not accept being God's child if it means that I might suffer. I won't do it. I will not live as God's child if it means that it will be shame for me for a period of time on this world. I want that glory now. And if being a Christian means I cannot be well-respected, I'm not going to do it. For those who wait for him, it really is talking about faith that I'm trusting that God will keep the promises that he has made. He promised that all who belong to Jesus are his children. He promises that he will lead them and take care of them as his children. He will insist on their holiness. And that, at the end of their lives, at the end of human history, that they will dwell with him in a land flowing with milk and honey. They will dwell with him in a land where there is only peace and righteousness and joy. And we're willing to wait because God is faithful. He who promised is faithful. And not only that, those promises have already been paid for. They were paid for with Christ's blood. And do you think that the Lord would fail to give Christ what he paid for? We can be those who wait. And so, dear church, we confess that sin is unthinkable considering how God deals with his people, those who are not his people and those who are his people. Our third point we're going to get from this third section, confess that sin is unthinkable considering how sin deals with people, right? For the second one was con confess that sin is unthinkable considering how God deals with people. This one, confess that sin is unthinkable considering how sin deals with people. And let's read verses 6 and 7 of 64. We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There's no one who calls upon your name who rouses himself to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us. You have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. The first thing we see here is that sin makes us unclean. Where do we hear people crying out, unclean, unclean in Scripture? Where do we see that? Whose cry is that? The cry of the... It's the cry of the leper. Sin has polluted us. Sometimes we think of sin as, as merely a mistake that we make. It's an oops. It's, you know what? It's kind of like getting a math question wrong. No, sin is much worse than that. It's more than a mistake. It's not even merely a broken law. It is a broken law, but it's a moral stain. If we were in our right minds, if we could see things as God sees things, we would see sin the way someone with leprosy would see leprosy. 
they wouldn't just see it as, you know, it's just a flaw. They would see something that is debilitating, something that they need to get rid of that's going to take their life. It's a, it's a stain. It makes them unclean. A stain that will not wear out. It is a mark. It is an uncleanness. We see this is true even of righteous deeds. Did you notice that? Even our righteous deeds, and all verse 6, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. The true heart of repentance sees that even your righteous deeds are not things that could save you. That everything we have done is polluted, is, a, is polluted by our sin. Sin is not kind. Sin is not a good master. Sin is not kind. We see this in verse 6 again. We all fade like a leaf. And our iniquities like the wind takes us away. In the autumn as you're walking through the forest or even through uh, the city, you see all these trees and they, the leaves start green, right? And then they start turning color. Why are they turning color? Is it because somebody's painting them with a brush? What's happening to them? Why are they turning color? They're dying. These leaves are dead. They're dying and then they're dead. And then, do we expect those dead leaves to, to stay on the tree? They're going to, what's the name of the season? They're going to fall. And they're going to be blown away by the wind, hopefully into our neighbor's yard so we don't have to clean them up. James tells us that sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Sin is not for your good. The rebellion that Satan leads people into is not for their good, and we are fools to think that it is. Sin brings death. Sin is anti-God, but it is not pro-you. Sin is pro-death. Pro-your death, for the death of the people around you. It makes people leaves that die. And it blows us away. Maybe you've known somebody like this. Maybe it is yourself where you didn't take a sin seriously or they didn't take a sin seriously. But there's that sin they would never do. I would not do that one. That's too far. I would not destroy my family. You know, I'm a good person. I allow myself to do this sin but I would never, I would never engage in a sin that would be against my family, against my wife, or against my children, or against this. I would never do that. I would not, sin, I would not be one who destroys a family, but I'm going to allow this sin in my life. How many times has the story played out? Just like James says, just like Isaiah is referring to here, sin when it is full grown gives birth to death, and then a few years later, they're doing the thing that they would never have dreamed they would do, six years ago because they believed the lie that sin was a better master, a better life, that it was better to be fatherless, to live as an orphan who's run away from home and is living it up on the streets than to have God as your father. It also, one of the effects that, it, that sin gives is that it gives you no desire for God. Did you notice this in verse 7? There is no one 
who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you. This is talking about our desire. You can be roused by, you can get out of bed to do something, but only the things that you really want or feel like you have a need for. This is one of the impacts that sin has on the human heart, is that it kills your desire for God. It kills your desire for something that is most wonderful and most beautiful, most satisfying, most good, most delightful. It kills your taste buds for the things of God. It kills your heart, your desire for him. It, kill, it makes your ears deaf to him. It makes your eyes blind to how good he is. This is kind of like carbon monoxide. Carbon monoxide in one way is not poisonous. Carbon monoxide kills you. Not simply because it's poisonous, but it kills in a particular way. It fools your body into thinking that it is oxygen. And your body prefers it more than it prefers oxygen. And so your blood cells take it. If it's a choice between that and oxygen, it'll take that. But that, of course, can't sustain life. Friends, this is what sin has done. This is why everyone is born in sin. This is what happened when Adam sinned. Sin makes us dead in sin and dead to the things of God. But sin has this impact on Christians as well. When they give in to sin, when they do not turn from it, when they do not confess it, they don't fight against it, when they just give in, you don't realize it. You think for a while you can be a person who's just engaging in the sin and not repenting, and I can also go to church and love hearing of my Father God and what Christ has done on the cross and how wonderful the gift of the Holy Spirit is. You can think for a while, I'll be able to do both of those things. This is great, it's working, but you know what will happen. It will kill your desire for God. This is sin's hallmark. This might be the worst part of what sin is. Not just the consequences, you know, you're going to ruin your life or you're going to ruin other people's lives. Yes, that's bad. But could you think of something more dangerous than a person who does not want life? Somebody who does not want God. And yet, we have these people praying for people who did not initiate a relationship with God, who are caught in sin, living a ruined life. He gives them this day he gives them the opportunity to pray this prayer. And friends, maybe that is you. And maybe you're hearing this and you're saying, that kind of feels like me. It feels like my love for God has grown cold. I've turned away from him so many times, it feels like I can't even, I can't even want to turn to him anymore. Friends, this is the prayer for you. Today is the day of salvation. Today, you have an opportunity to turn. Don't assume that you will have another one tomorrow. Call on him now. Turn to him now. Recognize that to be his child is the greatest thing, not that simply exists, but the greatest thing that could be imagined to exist. Brings us to our last point in our, the, in the ending verse of this song. Call on the mercy of the Father to complete a household which shows his glory. Let's read verses 8 to 12 of chapter 64. But now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay. You are our potter. 
We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord. And remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are all your people. Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house where our fathers praised you has been burned by fire. And all our pleasant places are, have become ruins. Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? We learn from here is that when you find yourself in sin, embrace God's fatherhood. Call on him as father. Embrace that relationship as a father-child. Call on him for mercy. Do not call on him for what you deserve. Confess that you are his. I am yours. Treat me as if I belong to you. I am your child. Please bring me back. Do whatever it takes to bring me back. Treat me like a child. I know I have hated you treating me like a child, but now please treat me like a child again. Discipline me. Do whatever it takes. Bring me back. I'm not not yours. I am yours. I believe your promises. I believe the gospel. I am one of your people. I know I don't deserve it. I know I haven't been acting like it, but I want to be your father. I want you to be my father. There's nothing greater than to have you as my father. Please do this. And here we are back at talking about the glorious, beautiful house. Back to that, aren't we? And saying, draw your attention and then God's attention to the fact that these two houses don't match. Your house on heaven, in heaven and your house on earth. These things aren't matching. Because it's his responsibility to bring that. It's his responsibility. It's the Messiah's responsibility to make the household on earth, the household of God on earth, exactly like the household of God in heaven. This is the Messiah's responsibility. This is Jesus' responsibility. This is why he came, to make the household on earth, God's household on earth, his people, exactly like the household in heaven. Jesus is the builder of the house. He is the one. He says, I will build my church and what? And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He takes responsibility. He was sent to build a church. And not just to build a church, but to make her glorious and beautiful and holy. And how is it that Jesus fulfills this responsibility? Because here you have a, a whole bunch of sinful people, all of whom have acted like God's enemies. All of us have acted like orphans who've run away and not listened to any father or even had a father ever. We've all acted like that. And yet he's building a house out of all of us and his responsibility is to make sure it looks like that. The first way he does that is by switching records with us. We talked about how sin is a stain. It pollutes us. It makes us unclean. And that, it just, that, that stain doesn't wear out. You can't wash it out. Where did that stain and that shame go from your garment if Christ is making you holy? Where did it go? 2 Corinthians 5. He who knew no sin became sin. All those stains that we have because of sin, all that wickedness, all that shame and that dirtiness, God didn't just get rid of it. He didn't just ignore it. He didn't just get over it. All of that was placed on Christ. And Christ was punished for our sin. And not only was Christ punished for our sin, he gave us his righteousness. He clothes us in his glorious and righteous robes, meaning his record. So now, you stand before God. If you are in Christ, you stand before God with the record that Christ has 
How did he keep the Ten Commandments? That's your record, how he kept it. Then he also, he also fulfills this responsibility by changing us, by giving us his spirit, by giving us his own heart, the Holy Spirit changing our hearts so that we would now be people who once again desire God, who transforms us bit by bit by bit by bit. That's called sanctification or holification, making holy. He does that. That's Christ's responsibility. He promises to do that in all his people. He will bit by bit by bit transform you. Little bit by bit, little bit, he will treat you like a child. He will change you. The change is not going to be complete until you meet him. But the minute you do meet Christ face to face, that will be complete. And what's the word for that? Glorification. Does that remind you of any words that we find in this song anywhere? Anywhere? Holy and beautiful, glorious house. He has promised that he will do this. The head of the house takes responsibility for it. Your friends, isn't it wonderful that you aren't the head of the household of God? Who's the head of the household of God? The Lord Jesus is. He takes responsibility to make us God's children, to treat us as God's children, to form us as God's children, and to make a glorious and beautiful house that matches how glorious God is. Dear friends, this is something that we can use as a personal prayer, isn't it? Maybe you feel that you have shipwrecked your faith. You've ruined things. You've hardened your heart so much that you just feel like you can't pray. If this is you, you need to remember the promises of God. Do not be foolish enough to not turn to God. And you can turn to him as father. Call on him to treat you like a child, treat you like a daughter or son. Shape me, call me back, bring me back. Make me like you, forgive me. Trust him to keep his promises to do that. This is also something we could use as a corporate prayer. As Carl prayed earlier, we can pray for the holiness of God's church globally. We see the, sin, the, the, we see the church in many ways struggling, walking in sin, people who call on Christ, who are embracing all kinds of disobedience and saying that it is good. We can pray with confidence that God will keep that promise. Christ will purify his church. God has done so in many times and in many ways over the course of church history. The Reformation was one of those examples where God said, no, these are my children. I'm going to reform them. I'm not giving up on them. Sure, there's a lot of false converts in the church, but I'll get rid of them. But I will sanctify my people. They are my household. And they can call me father. And I am their father. Because Christ paid for their sins with his blood. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that, uh, first of all, that you took the initiative to save us and adopt us. Though we were your enemies, you have made us your sons and daughters by Christ's death and resurrection. But we, we realize that even after you have saved us, we have, we have sinned. And not just in little ways, oopses, and every sin, Lord, is, is rebellion against you. It is acting as if it is preferable to be your enemy, to not have you as our Father. And Lord, that is just so wicked. And, and for that, you have every, every reason to, to cast us away and just find better people. But we are grateful 
that those whom you adopt, you adopt permanently. You give us your spirit as a pledge, as a guarantee to make sure that we will not fully and finally stray from you. You are committed to us as a father. Not because we deserve to be your children, but because we get what Jesus deserves, and that is to be your children, because he was instead treated like an enemy on the cross. Father, I pray that the blood of Christ would be applied to us, that we would be saved from our sin, that our strength would be reestablished, our, our faith would be reestablished in you, and that you would make us love being your children. We pray that you would lead us to repentance. Lord, those who are not yet yours, who've never trusted in Christ, I pray that they would today. They would see how foolish it is to sin against such a good God and how foolish it would be to try to earn that back. Just trust in Christ's death, that he was punished instead of them so that they could have what he deserves. And for those here who are Christians who have been straying and ignoring particular sin and just accepting it in their life and justifying it, Lord, who have maybe hardened themselves to your warnings, I pray that you, your spirit would, would effectively break through, soften their hearts again, treat them like your children, bring them back, and restore to them the joy of their salvation. Lord, we don't deserve this, but we're gonna confidently pray this, and we are convinced you will answer this because Christ bought the answer to that prayer with his blood. So it's in his name we pray.